open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 12. We come to the conclusion this morning of this series that has carried through the better part of the fall from this Old Testament wisdom book. Ecclesiastes, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you from the seat rack in front of you, uh, you can find this on page 559. We believe it's written by Solomon. I won't review all of that background information, but he never uses that name. He identifies himself as the preacher, and that's where this title of the book comes from. It's actually a Greek word having to do with uh, the, the called out people of God and the preacher or teacher, uh, both of those almost used interchangeably for our understanding. But here we come to the end of this particular book of wisdom uh, literature. And it is, as we're going to read in just a moment, the culmination of what many believe was really a lifetime of investigation and search and inquiry. Solomon, if he is the author, and that's, I think that's the best conclusion we could reach, the best option, uh, he was the wisest man who ever lived, according to God's word. Had all the resources that any person could ever need to conduct an investigation, had access to all kinds of experts, uh, other rulers, all kinds of things that were available to him as he conducted this investigation of the meaning of life, of the futility and purposes of life, and he's distilled it into uh, really just a, a few chapters of helpful perspective and wisdom. Now, even as we come to the end here of Ecclesiastes 12, this morning, just verses 9 through 14, he distills this whole book into a couple of uh, summary headings, if you will. And he boils it all down for us. And even as I begin to read here in a moment and you follow along, you will see uh, the author of this book, the preacher, as he refers to himself one more time here, telling us, here's the conclusion. So you follow along as I read Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh." The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Would you pray with me, please? Father, each week we gather with expectation and hope that from this living word, this inscripturated word, that you would speak to us by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, more than just a human messenger who stands in this place week in and week out. Oh God, how much we need to hear from you. Your word assures us, not just that you are the good shepherd, but that your sheep hear your voice and they know you. 
There are some here this morning who have heard your voice for many, many years, and they are in need of a a fresh word today. Would you speak to them as you have promised? There are others who have actually never really heard your voice, and this is the day that you have appointed where they will sense and know that you, as the good shepherd of their souls, are speaking to them, calling them to leave their own ways and their own paths and by faith to enter into a path of eternal life. Speak, good shepherd. Call them out of their spiritual darkness and frustration and fear and anxiety. Call them that they may know that you are the good and gracious creator. Call them that they may know you are king not just over this world, but over their very soul and bring them to that place of rest. There are all kinds of needs represented here, good shepherd, and you know this flock better than any other living being could know this flock. And so we pray that as have opportunity to set our hearts upon the word and as we submit ourselves to the spirit that you would that that you would minister the truth of this word to those specific needs walking these aisles even even seating yourself next to some who are here bodily but their minds are a thousand miles away oh good shepherd serve your sheep shepherd your sheep Bless and feed and strengthen and rescue your sheep, we pray. In your most holy name, the name that is above every other name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. And I want you to notice just a few things about the ministry of the preacher. He describes some things here for us. First of all, note with me, if you will, the wisdom. And, and there, are, there are four W words. Some of you really like that alliteration, and I, I think it's a helpful way to remember. So four W words. The first is the wisdom. The second is the work. Then we're going to look at the words, and then we're going to look at the warning here. But look, first of all, at verse 9, because he describes himself as being wise. And it's actually a technical term. It doesn't stand out that way to us in the English, but again, if we are reading the old Hebrew text, we might actually perk up a little bit and say, ooh, that's a significant word because it has specific reference to a wise man. We might use the word sage to describe someone. And in the community, it was a position of high respect and high regard, much like prophets and priests also held positions of influence and high regard in in the Old Testament community. So this is a designation of a more technical nature. This is a a member of the wise and uh, learned people. And this is the one who is saying to us, I've set some things down, and, and he's given himself to a very specific work. The work of the preacher begins to unfold in the second part of verse 9. He says, I taught the people knowledge. And then he tells us how he formed the, the material that he would teach. Notice these three specific words, weighing, studying, and arranging many proverbs. Now, the word weighing has to do with his effort to give serious thought, to consider carefully. And implied here is that he himself is not just a good student, but a, but a good listener. 
We'll fill in a blank here a little later, but the question would be, who's he listening to? Well, there could be a variety of sources, but as it becomes clear in this passage, he's listening chiefly to the one great shepherd. God is the one that this teacher is giving serious thought to. The second word, studying, has to do with searching out or examining, investigating. It's what serious students do through their academic careers. The third word, arranging, has to do with taking that body of material and setting it in order in a meaningful way. Some of you are teachers, and you do lesson plans daily, week in and week out. Veteran teachers have a whole stack of lesson plans, but those need to be updated and refreshed. Some of you have taught long enough where you remember the good old days where it was just, you know, a chalkboard and a, 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 a few erasers and, and pieces of chalk and the students sat with real paper in front of them and were always sharpening pencils or, you know, getting their pens and man, technology just blew all of that away, didn't it? As a matter of fact, this morning, one of the technological things we're wrestling with is this update is, and you may have noticed, where's the PowerPoint? We're not quite there yet. And I just made a passing comment. It's almost enough to make me want to just put a chalkboard up front and say, you know, point number one. Well, teachers understand that ordering the, the body of material in a meaningful way is essential to learning. And that's what the preacher is telling us. He's given his life to. We sometimes have the idea that the writers of Scripture, you know, maybe just entered some, some sort of, you know, catatonic state or, you know, had some bizarre spiritual experience where the Holy Spirit magically produced the holy word that we call the Bible. The Apostle Peter actually spoke very specifically of what God did through uh, more than 40 authors, Solomon being one of them, Peter being one of them, and in the New Testament, the first century, The Apostle Peter wrote that we should know, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. Sometimes people have this notion that authors like Solomon or Peter just kind of made it up on the spot. Peter says that's not how, that's not how we authored God's Word. He goes on in 1 Peter 1 verse 21 to say, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, there's something supernatural that takes place in the production of this book. It's part of what makes it so precious. It's not just that a a group of people along the way decided, hey, we should call this the Word of God. It's actually that God himself spoke, revealing himself. He was doing that in Solomon's day, in Peter's day, And it is a remarkable treasure that we hold in our hands to say this is the word of God. Well, back to the text, the work of the preacher is first to teach, and his teaching is the product or overflow of his own study and investigation and preparation. Notice the second big word as we continue moving through this. He says, I sought to find something. That is, he was trying to learn information about God, about life, and there's an implied diligence in the acquisition of this information. And then he says, uprightly, he wrote. That is, he wrote with sincerity, without pretense. He was trying to be true to the truth that God was revealing to him. That's the work that the preacher has devoted himself to. And now look at the second half of verse 10. 
because there are specific words that he makes reference to. And notice, first of all, the nature of these words. They're words of delight and they're words of truth. These words are designed by God, given through an author like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, that ordinary people like us might take pleasure in them. Not in the sense of being entertained the way we are about to entertain ourselves in the coming weeks with, you know, the classic Christmas movies and some of you will binge on Hallmark Channel the way you've binged on turkey and sweet potatoes and dressing over the last several days. We're not talking about that kind of entertainment or pleasure. We're actually talking about something of a deeply spiritual nature that these words bring a pleasure or joy to your soul because as you read them, as you study them, as you meditate upon them, you recognize the words of the living God are given for my living soul. It changes us. Remember last week how we, as a little cross-reference, went to Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 and 13 for just a moment, where Moses was recounting the command of God to walk in all his ways, to love, serve, Um, to love and serve him with all of our heart and with all our soul. Then he said in verse 13, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. There are many people who feel like God is just a great killjoy. You know, like if, 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 if I do this Christianity thing, fun is done. And that's actually a very short-sighted, even immature perspective. It reflects a lack of understanding of the goodness of God. God's law is actually a law of love. He describes it it as the royal law of love. And even if you just start with the Ten Commandments and begin working through them, it becomes really clear that God in love gives us these instructions that first of all, we may enter into uh, a, a love relationship with him. And second of all, that we would love all the other people around us in a a meaningful way. No, God's not looking to kill joy. He's actually looking to produce joy. And think back through this brief series in Ecclesiastes of how often we've actually been commanded to rejoice in specific things of this life. It's for our good. They're words of delight, but they are also words of truth. Words that are not just accurate in what they describe, but these are actually words that you can build your life on. They're faithful words. They're firm words. There are many things in life that are uncertain to us. Many things we will never fully understand, let alone control. But God is giving us words of truth that you really can build your life on. That's their nature. Now look at their origin. The preacher goes on to write that they are words, the words of the wise are like goads and nails. We've talked about this before, but for the sake of those of you who haven't been here through the whole series, goads uh, are like cattle prods. They're, They're not designed to hurt. They're just designed to get you going the right direction. And then the nails... Well, that's a vivid image for us. We use nails to fasten things together. Uh, Somebody pointed out that nails, uh, we we call them tent stakes, but even in that Old Testament culture would be used to fasten tents to the ground. They're they're things that secure important structures. And 
So God's wisdom is important to securing the structure of life itself. So the word of God gets us moving the right direction in life, and the word of God anchors and stabilizes us in life. But notice this really important point. These words of wisdom are given by one shepherd. And in many of our English versions, the, the, the title shepherd is capitalized for good reason. Because it seems very apparent that the preacher, even as he writes these words, has a profound and if not overwhelming sense that these words come from the living God. But don't you love the fact that he uses the title shepherd to refer to God? Think about that for just one moment. One of the favorite psalms in all of Scripture is Psalm 23 that tells us the Lord, the self-existent creator God is my shepherd. Because of that, I, I will not want. God began revealing himself to his people in, from ancient times even to present days as a shepherd. Now, you think of all of his characteristics, his attributes, his work, his ways. Why, why would he want to reveal himself to people like us as a shepherd? Well, I think in part because our nature is one of absolute dependence. Even on your best days, when, when you are functioning, you know, kind of at your optimal speed, optimum speed, you know, you're, you're doing the thing that you believe God created you for and life is going well, you are still dependent upon him for your very next breath and your very next heartbeat. We have a few days like that in the course of life, don't we? But most of our days are characterized by surprises and challenges and lack of resources or lack of strength. All those things that remind us we are dependent people. And the Lord is never threatened by your dependence. And some of us would do well to stop acting like it's all up to us. He's a shepherd. Shepherds know that sheep are not the brightest creatures on the face of planet Earth. Shepherds know that sheep need to be led. Shepherds know that sheep need to be nursed and cared for. That's what makes a passage uh, like Daniel read at the outset of the service from that Old Testament prophecy, Ezekiel, so amazing that God says, I myself will seek the lost and bind up the broken and, and search for you who've been driven away. It's his nature. Shepherding isn't something that he just kind of tacks on to his daily schedule. It's in his nature to care for people like us. I love Isaiah 40. It reminds us again, God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Clearly, the preacher believes that what he wrote comes from the very heart of this shepherd, and that makes these words so precious. Now look at verse 12, because there is a warning. This is the verse that many students claim, or a portion, I should say, right? Beware, he writes, 
of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Any of you quoted that to your parents or a teacher? Just don't use it out of context, right? There's truth in that. Let's unpack that for a moment here. What's the warning? What are, what are we supposed to beware of? Anything beyond these. Well, is Solomon saying that God's people shouldn't study any of their books outside of the Bible? I know people who brag about that. I I don't do commentaries. I just read the word of God. And you've heard me say a variation of this before, but like, do you, I I was, and some, occasionally I will say it, just straight up, but like, do you ever talk to other people to seek their input? Commentaries are, are like friends. You need good ones. And you may not need a thousand but you need some. Solomon's not saying don't read any other literature outside of the Bible. No, he's actually just warning that there is worldly literature that just comes from a very different perspective. Even if you're familiar with it, that's not a problem, but don't devote yourself to it as if maybe you'll find some wisdom that God has not offered giving you perspective and direction on your life. I'm thankful for the education that I had that exposed me to all kinds of literature, both from ancient to modern. Now, I I couldn't quote much of it to you, but I spent years, particularly from high school and college, reading the thoughts and ideas of, of many other authors, and many of whom were not in a personal relationship with the God of the Bible. As a matter of fact, some of them were hostile toward it. Now, the warning here is that there will be literature, a variety of of things that are written and produced that actually are hostile to God's wisdom and deceitful. And as one author writes of this little portion, it's a warning about the useless and deceitful literature of others, which is in stark contrast to the genuine wisdom taught to us by God. The next phrase, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. There's a suggestion here, I think, that the competitors to wisdom are endless. You know, there are a lot of voices that compete for your attention. A lot of views and perspectives right now that are, are being posted and published Some people are shouting for your attention, screaming in your ear all the time. Think this way. Don't think that way. Come follow us. Join our cause. Join our protest. There will never be an end to that kind of effort. And there is an aspect, even in the information age, where it is a weariness Some of you have information fatigue right now. You would do yourself a favor to shut down some of those streams and feeds. And let the word of God just wash over your soul and detox you. Ephesians tells us that Jesus, as part of his great love for his church, washes us with the water of the word. God never intended for his people to be ignorant. That's not God's desire, and that's not Solomon's point here. 
But there is a warning here that just like much study is a weariness of the flesh, too much information is a weariness to your heart. Some people worship study and research itself. Education and learning become the end, not a means to a greater end. You know, that's actually how the Pharisees read their Bibles and studied God's word. There are two particular uh, confrontations from the Gospel of John that come to my mind. The one is found in John 5.39, where Jesus actually says to these scholars, I mean, they had memorized vast portions of the Old Testament, but to what end? The question has to be asked. And Jesus confronts them in love. And he says to them in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's possible to actually be a Bible scholar and yet miss the one who is revealed in the Bible. I'm sure that stung many of the Pharisees. Again, it just adds to this this great hostility that was growing uh, in their hearts against Jesus. It ultimately led to his crucifixion. But they were words of truth and words of love that they needed to hear. The Bible's not magic literature where if you just read enough of it, you know, something happens. No, you, you have to read it with a heart of faith, a heart of humility, a heart that's hungry to find the person that the Bible reveals to us. You see, even the study of God's word, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, will become a weariness. I'm always intrigued by people who devote their entire professional career to scholarship uh, in, in the whole biblical realm, and, and yet they, they seem to hate the God of the Bible. They seem to hate the truth that it promotes. They seem to hate specifically the gospel that calls us to repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ. But there they are, teaching in all kinds of universities and seminaries around the world, and their students come in, and day after day, they basically say, it's not God who wrote this. There's nothing supernatural about this, and you're a fool if you believe it. And I think, why don't you get a job that you would really enjoy? In contrast to the Pharisees, you have Paul reminding Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Timothy had the same Old Testament that the Pharisees did, and from a childhood, his mother and his grandmother, who are named specifically in those pastoral letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, have been training him up, in, not just in the content of the Scripture, but pointing him to the person of the Scripture. Parents, what a privilege it is to open God's Word with our children. 
don't, please don't buy into this worldly philosophy that says, well, my child needs to make up his mind for himself. It is true that every child needs to own the faith. Like, you don't get a, a free ride into heaven because your parents are super spiritual people or have faith in Jesus Christ. There comes a point where you have to own it. But parents, we have a grand privilege of, of discipling our children in the ways and works of God. And you will have no greater opportunity in all of your life to evangelize and disciple a human being than when God places a human being in your household don't miss it what a gift this word is and you know every one of us can devote ourselves to the pursuit of God's wisdom in the same ways that Solomon was pursuing wisdom devoting his life to those things not just so that he could write a book like this or have a lesson to teach uh, to to a group of of students or learners that may have assembled around his throne at a particular point No, every one of us can devote ourselves to the pursuit of God's wisdom in his word. I was thinking, you know, we're only five weeks away from a new year. And some of you have already started working on your resolutions. And some of you say, "Uh, you know, I'll get to that in about 33 days. Um, And some of you will say, I don't do New Year's resolutions. But, you know, it is a good time for us to think again about changes that we would like to make and whether it be diet and exercise or new habits you want to form or a list of books that you want to knock out in the next year I do think it's always a great time for us to evaluate as followers of Jesus what is my devotional life going to look like in the new year and and one of the popular things through many years now for followers of Christ has been to try to read the entire Bible in a year and for those of you who've never done it before let me just encourage you it's not as daunting as it seems Because honestly, 15 minutes a day, on average, would get you through the entire Bible in a year. Just 15 minutes a day. All kinds of plans. If if I were able to pull up uh, a slide on the screen, uh, I I would show you again uh, version. Bible.com, it's, it's one and the same. Many of you already use it. It's an amazing resource of uh, just dozens and dozens of English versions that you can pick from and scores and scores of Bible reading plans, some that will take you through the entire Bible in a year. Several of us have been using one this past year that gives you, uh, well, on average, two to three chapters, just moves you through the Bible, and one psalm every day. Oh, and that psalm is often... Uh, just so rich and so specific to the needs of the day. And a psalm can actually help you get through some of the tougher parts of the Old Testament, like Leviticus, which is a great book and does tell you about Jesus. That's another conversation. But 15 minutes a day. There's, there, there's not a person here who can say legitimately, I don't have 15 minutes a day, I'm too busy. It, it, and if that really is the case, we should talk we might be able to help you find 15 spare minutes. And I'd start with, let's talk about your social media usage. Because let's face it, so many of us get sucked down into that abyss. And it it starts legitimately, and that was a funny reel, and oh, there's another one here, and you know, hey, look at this. And then you look up, and you're like, ah, 90 minutes just went by? And you've just been swiping. 15 minutes a day. As you read, here's the second thing I want to give you. It's important to read. I think it's really helpful to try to record, write something down, just, just one meaningful thought. 
It could be just something about God that you've known for a long time or something you never knew. It might be, you know, as you read through the, the Bible in the coming year, all you did was to look for the names and titles of God. And so you're gonna just compile, as it were, a catalog or almost an autobiography of who God is and you meet him as the self-existent God and then you read through Genesis and you see how God is revealing himself to some of the old patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you learn things like you will actually find God revealing himself as shepherd, Jacob makes a big deal about that. I'm El Shaddai, I'm El Elyon, uh, God Most High. And the list goes on. And what if you just took 15 minutes a day to read and look for one specific thing about God, you made a one-sentence summary, and then at the end of the year, you could look back on an amazing record of your walk with God, discovering who he is. Here's a third thing for you. Try in the course of the day to recall it. Another word for that is meditation. Some of you say, man, I, I, I have a hard time memorizing. Yeah, but you can remember a basic thought. And then a fourth R, read, record, recall, renew your heart. I'm using an R there, but we call that prayer. Don't, don't unhitch prayer from God's word. Your prayer life, if it seems a little you know, repetitive and almost meaningless and you're like, all I do is just pray kind of the same stuff over and over every day. Well, try bringing in some of what you're reading from God's word into prayer and turn it into a prayer of praise. Turn it into a prayer of request or intercession for someone else. Every one of us can devote ourselves to pursuing God's wisdom in these ways. Well, in the last few minutes here, let's look at verses 13 and 14. We've been considering uh, the, the work or the ministry of the preacher, his wisdom, his work, his words, and a warning. But now let's look at the conclusion. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. You know, that's our ultimate purpose. We all share that. Now, we'll work it out in very specific and different ways. But there's not a person in this room, under the sound of my voice, who is excluded from this summary command. Fear God, keep his commandments. It's the ultimate purpose because what, what these two uh, ideas actually entail is is an active, living, personal relationship with God. Let me remind you again, the definition we've used for the fear of God, even prior to Ecclesiastes, is this simple little phrase. The fear of God means living in the constant awareness of the presence of God. But I wanna make sure that we understand it's not just like a a mental acknowledgement that there is a God out there. You know, like, oh, I believe in the man upstairs. No, when, when I hear somebody use that phrase, I think, but you don't know him. You know why? Because God actually never uses that name or title, the man upstairs. He reveals himself in very specific and personal ways. So I wanna make sure that we are understanding that to live in the constant awareness of the presence of God uh, is an acknowledgement that there's a relationship with God. First, he created me in his image That puts me in a relationship with him, but sin has broken that relationship. That's why some of you feel so distant from God. 
Your sin is actually an enormous barrier. But that's part of the joy of Christmas. God enters the world. He didn't just drop a ladder down from heaven and say, hey, if, if you work hard enough and you climb the ladder faithfully, you can make it back to me. He's not calling you to make it back to him. He actually came into the world to gather sinners through repentance and faith in him, to bring them back into a right relationship with him. And so the fear of God is clearly calling us to live in the constant awareness that we are in relationship with God. What does it mean to keep his commandments? Well, don't separate that from the fear of God. This is actually the first mention in the book of Ecclesiastes of keeping God's commands. Ecclesiastes compiles some of God's commands. It's certainly not a comprehensive listing that is included here, and I think it's good for us to broaden it beyond what you would find in the, in the immediate book. But what is the connection between fearing God and keeping his commandments? Well, again, if you understand both of those commands in terms of a relationship, you're living in a constant awareness uh, of God's presence. He's present with you and his design and desire is for you to be with him. Then keeping his commandments, it becomes an expression of that relationship. Would you turn to John's gospel with me? The New Testament. It's the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in chapter 14, if you have a red-letter edition, you notice there's a lot on these few pages here toward the end of John's gospel that is, is given in red. Well, those are the recorded words of Jesus. And one of the really powerful statements that the Apostle John has laid down for us is in verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. For the sake of time, go over to chapter 15 and look at verse 9. John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Who here is not looking for joy? And we look in all kinds of places for it. One of the beautiful things that Ecclesiastes has reminded us of is there's joy to be found in your food and your drink and your work and your relationships, dress in white, anoint your head. You know, I mean, there's a whole list of things where like those are just the ordinary joys of life that we find, but those are emptied of any significant joy if you're not in right relationship with the joy giver. And Jesus is telling us something really important here about his commands. They're ultimately designed not just for a, uh, to, to help you understand the nature of God's love for you and for you to reciprocate love to him, but there's fullness of joy. Now let's be careful that we, we, we don't read this in a legalistic way. Well, if I keep God's commandments, then he likes me, then he will forgive my sins and give me eternal life. No, th- there's nothing in the Old or the New Testament that, that points us that direction that somehow you can work your way by your obedience back into relationship with God. But when he brings you into relationship by his grace, by the sacrifice of Jesus, 
he does turn around and say, now let's talk about the way of love. Love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love other people as you love yourself. Well, that's what Jesus is getting at. And, and he uses terms that speak of an intimate, personal relationship. That's what abiding in his love is all about. Keep his commandments because you are in relationship with him. Now go back to Ecclesiastes. The last little phrase for our consideration this morning, verse 14. Why do we do that? For God will bring every deed into judgment. We spent a little time here last week. So I don't intend to re-preach all of that information, but it is a sobering thing to us that every deed, as the preacher says here, every secret thing, whether good or evil, God will bring into judgment. Wow. You know, first of all, let's talk about the sin that you would be terrified to walk into God's presence with. How do you deal with that? By humble repentance and faith. You humbly acknowledge it is a serious offense against you, God. I'm guilty in word, in thought, in deed, whatever it might be. But then you just as quickly ask for his forgiveness, and he always forgives. That's what First John 1 9 says. What an amazing gift. What an amazing God that he's eager and willing to forgive all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You receive that cleansing. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You just receive it. And as you turn from your sin, you turn in faith to him. So here's the great hope that many right in this room are living with. It's not that they've lived a perfect life and say, you know what, when I stand before God, you know, he's, gonna, he's always been really impressed with me and, that, and then everybody else will get to see what I'm really like on that day. No, to be in God's presence is a, would, would be an absolutely terrifying thing if you did not know that you were actually forgiven all of your sins, given uh, true sonship as he describes it, and knew that there was no condemnation facing you. And that's what, the, that's what the word of God tells us. So what does this judgment have reference to? Well, I think as we touched on last week from both Romans and Corinthians, I think it has to do with uh, the, the judgment seat that God's people will face where the quality of our works, of our choices, of our activity will be assessed, and some of it will be lost. Because as Paul describes to the Corinthians, it's like wood, hay, and stubble. You throw that stuff in the fire, and it's burned up. And there, even, we don't have time to go there, but Paul writes that in such a way where it seems like there may be some temporary pain. It's a reminder we need to be careful about what we devote ourselves to. But Ecclesiastes helps us from swerving into uh, a a ditch that says, well, it's all got to be, you know, of a spiritual nature, and we've just got to be evangelizing all the time and on mission, and if we're not preaching, we ought to be teaching. If we're not teaching, we ought to be praying, and, you know, we never did pray enough, so, you know, and you don't have time to just eat and drink and be with the people that you love. Let's face it, there's been a lot of football that some of us have watched over the last several days. Is that deeply spiritual? Some of it is. 
There's a place for that. And I do actually want to be careful that I don't bind anybody's conscience in, an, you know, it, it, in a hyper-spiritual way where you're like pr- paralyzed to do anything that doesn't sound like a hymn or a prayer or you know, evangelism or Bible reading. Because that's not what God has designed us for. So he does remind us again that, that a testing is coming. This is where I do wish I could put this quotation up on the screen because this was so helpful for me. It's a commentary. I think Matt referred to it a couple of weeks ago in his sermon, but it's a commentary by Derek Kidner that, that's really helpful. If you want to go back and do some follow-up study in Ecclesiastes, uh, you, you would do well to find this commentary. But he notes that the last verse of Ecclesiastes drives home the point with a final blow that is sharp enough to hurt, but shrewd enough to jolt us out of apathy, that that there's going to be a judgment. It kills complacency to know that nothing goes unnoticed and unassessed, not even the things that we disguise from ourselves. But at the same time, it transforms life. Because if God cares as much as this, cares so much that he would assess everything about our lives. Open stuff, the secret stuff, the good stuff, the evil stuff. If he cares as much as this, nothing can be pointless. And so we're brought again to the reality, your life matters. The obscure work you do Monday through Friday that nobody else sees or even seems to give a care about, God cares about it and he delights in it. And when you sit down to a meal, whether it be with family or friends or even in private, and you taste those wonderful flavors that come across the taste buds on your tongue, and you say, wow, that is so good. And and your heart just glimpses, just for a split second, the glory of the creator who created your taste buds and the tastes that hit those buds. It matters. And when you flop down on the couch after, you know, a long day of cooking and cleaning up and you pop on a football game and you watch it and you get really wrapped up in it and then, like, your team pulls out the miracle victory as my team did yesterday. And, and in your heart, you, you actually have a heavenward motion. And I'm so thankful that God does this. This is not the reason, I, not the sole reason I watch football, but it's something that happens to me. You're like, oh, that's a glimpse like the bad guys really are going to be run off the field one day and the good guys are going to win. And you kind of hyper-spiritualize some of that, but no, there's a glimpse, maybe a distorted or broken glimpse, but there's something in your soul that longs for the king of righteousness, the shepherd, to make his appearance and set this chaotic, distorted, oppressed world in order. And it's coming. It's why we do our work. It's why we eat our food. It's why we play the games. On our journey through Ecclesiastes, we've wrestled hard with things like injustice and evil, the suffering in our world and the brevity of life. We feel ourselves torn between God's sovereign control and our finite understanding. We've stared the decline of our strength and death itself in the face 
and, and with the preacher wondered, what is the point? But God in his kindness has said, look at me. I'll tell you the point. I'll show you the point. And the shepherd has given his wisdom that you would not despair today or tomorrow or all the days that are yet to come. And even in this difficult journey through some really dark and perplexing scenarios, and God hasn't answered all the hardest questions in many ways, has he? But he has said to us, as he did back in chapter 3, verse 12, I make all things beautiful in their time, and for you right now to eat and drink and take pleasure in your toil, that's my gift to you. We heard him say very clearly, coming out of another dark consideration in chapter 5, behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his portion. And in chapter 9, go. That is, despite the chaos and insanity of the world around you, despite the frustrations and, and difficult struggles in your own soul that you are wrestling with, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Last thought from Walter Kaiser, who's another fantastic commentator and Bible scholar and teacher, but he says of Ecclesiastes, it is a summary of the beginning, middle, and end of life as we know it on this earth. Here's, here's sub-point number one, coming to know and trust the living God, receiving the gifts of life's goods, learning how to enjoy those mundane gifts, understanding the major part of the plan of God, and being guided into joyous and strenuous activity in the art of living, even while portions of life remain so hard to understand. Ecclesiastes, at the end of the day, is like wind in the sails of believers who know the water is choppy, if not terrifying. The journey is long. We don't know exactly where it's going to lead us, but we trust the God who gave us life and breath and who one day will call us into his presence. So go live. Go live because he is God. Go live to make him known to others. Even in this holiday season, continue to share your table, even though it may not be lavishly laden. Because a meal at your table for someone who does not know God could make all the difference in their eternal destination. Invite them to sit down and watch a sporting event that you know they enjoy and you could enjoy. And if you have opportunity, without being you know, weird or, you know, turning it into a hostage crisis, crisis, share Jesus and the gospel. And go back to the workplace tomorrow, as challenging as that environment is, and let your coworkers recognize that you are living for something above the sun. And that the happiness of, of this season is not dependent upon whether your boss gives a Christmas bonus or not, or whether you hit... The, the quotas that have been set, or even if you retain your job because you found the creator of the universe and he is yours and you are his. Vanity, 
Life is short, but it's not meaningless. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you that you have given us words of wisdom and thank you that you've done it as a shepherd. We ask, Lord God, that you would give us grace to believe all that you have revealed to us, that we would submit in obedience, that we would submit in faith. Shepherd us while your heads are bowed and you remain in a spirit of prayer. Dear friend, if you have sat in this service today and thought to yourself, I don't think I really understand from experience the things that are being sung about, the message that was just preached, even the words that we read, but I want to. Friend, if there is a desire in your heart to know more, or even more specifically, to enter a personal relationship with this God that we've been speaking of and singing about all morning, you can do that. And there are, you're among friends who would love to go back to God's word and open it with you and show you how you can know that your sins are forgiven and that you have, in fact, received the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If that's the question or the desire in your heart today, would you just remain in your seat after the service here in a little bit and let one of us show you? I'm gonna be near the front of this room and I would love to speak with you. Matt and Daniel, who you met earlier in the service, are also available and we have other leadership and church family that are are ready to meet with you. Don't leave, though, until you've had an opportunity to ask your questions or explore a little more and just hear. We want you to know. We want you to know the God that we have come to know. So, Father, would you continue to do your work in our hearts Transform us by these words of wisdom. Lead us again day by day in the path of life. But even as you lead us, please, Lord God, let us see you and know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.